If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 7 as we uh, continue our our brief study in the book of Psalms. Basically, we started um, a a study last week and we'll be looking at Psalms 6 through Psalm 10. And, And the idea here is that when we finish one book, such as we finished 1 Corinthians a, a while back, then before we start the new book, which by the way will be Ecclesiastes, we're going to spend five to ten weeks in the book of Psalms, and this will help us get through the book of Psalms. Um, it'll take us a while, but we got time. So the Lord may return, and then that would even be better. Um, but if he doesn't, we got time. So today we're... we're uh, continuing our study in Psalm, and we are in Psalm chapter 7. Now, Psalm chapter 7 has been characterized or classified as a psalm of lament. And if you recall last week, we, we reminded ourselves that there, in the psalms there are many different classifications or categories of psalms. And we talked, there are psalms of praise, and there are psalms of thanksgiving. We talked about psalms of ascent. That is, that these were the songs that the, um, the people of God sang as they walked up the mountain, up the hill towards the temple in Jerusalem. Hence, as they ascended the hill of God to enter into the temple to worship. They sang these psalms. There were psalms of coronation that they sang at the coronation of a king. And today our psalm is a psalm of lament. It is a psalm that expresses grief. And so one of our great questions then, or one of the natural questions will be, if this is a psalm of lament, then what does David lament? What is, is, what grief um, has prompted this psalm. And lament is an expressive grief. So um, what is David's lament? And it's really quite simply this. He is being falsely accused. He is being slandered. And this becomes very evident to us. And so David is expressing a lament. He is exp- expressing grief over slanderous words spoken about him that David is very certain of are untrue. So let me give you a little bit of a setting um, before I give you a preview of where we're going to go when we look into the text. But uh, the setting is that this psalm makes it clear that David is being slandered. He is false accusations are being spoken about him. And the superscription of the psalm um, helps us see this very clearly. The psalm itself will we'll see it, but the superscription, which are the little words before verse 1, um, a shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. And so that's the superscription. Um, and so here we see the superscription providing some assistance for us. These... Uh, it is concerning the words of a person by the name of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, we don't know who Cush is, um, but the words of Cush prompted this song. Like I said, we don't know exactly who Cush Well, we don't know even remotely who Cush is. Um, I'm sure people have made guesses, but we don't know who he is. But likely he is one who is loyal to Saul. And the reason I would say that is because these... Di- David sang this song to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Saul was a Benjaminite. Remember, 
Saul was David's predecessor. He was the king before David. And Saul hmm, didn't always treat David very well. In fact, he tried to kill him multiple times. David had multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but he never did. So it's quite likely that this is an individual who is loyal to Saul. They're from the same tribe. They're kind of from the same family. And this individual, Cush, a Benjaminite, is speaking slanderous lies toward about David. Words spoken against David by a man named Cush. And David then claims to be innocent. He's saying, wait a second, I've done none of those things. Um, and, and we'll get into that. Um, so, in this psalm, we are not only going to learn about David's situation, but about David's God. And I want you to keep that in mind when we go through the psalms. It's easy to get um, focused on what's going on on in the psalm. But note this, the psalms are deeply theological. That is, they inform us greatly about who God is. And that will be our focus today. We will look briefly at David's immediate situation, but the focus is on David's God. And that, again, will be our focus. So we will focus less today on what to do when slandered. A lot of commentaries, a lot of sermons. I I hear godly men who are, are faithful to God's word, I'm not, I'm not slandering them at all, um, talk about, well, what to do when slandered. I, th- I think that's an important area, but I think the focus here is God is revealed in great and wondrous ways, and I want to, that's what I'm going to share today. That will be our focus today, is the God that David cries out to. One of the things we need to remember that, um, and we brought this up last week, that, and, and it's very evident or clear in the Psalms, because in the Psalms we, we see a lot of personal struggle, we see a lot of difficulty, and sometimes we, we might falsely say, well, those psalmists, they were just a bunch of whiners and they just complained a lot. They did complain a lot. But God, I want to remind you that God uses struggle against dark forces to reveal who he is. God uses struggle against dark forces for him to reveal who he is to his people. You see, God could say, I am loving Or God could demonstrate his love for us by sending his son, Jesus Christ. God could say, I am a protector. Or he could put us into a situation where we rely on his protective abilities. God could say, well, I'm just. Or he could also put us into a situation where we will rely upon his justice. And so God is going to display his attributes um, against a 
the wickedness of the world. He's not just going to say that I'm a righteous judge. He's not just going to say that I am a place of refuge. He is going to demonstrate to David, this is how I protect you. And church, God often will put his people into trying situations so that he can demonstrate to you and to me how sufficient he is and we will come to trust him more and more. So that's just a quick setting. I don't know if it was quick, but that's the setting. I'll give you a little preview. This is what we want to uh, discover about the psalm as we go through it. We're going to see a few different things. First of all, we're going to see God as a refuge, a place of safety. We're going to see God as a righteous judge. We're also going to see God as the executor of justice. Um, He is the one who passes sentence and then he carries out that sentence. So as judge, he, he, he comes to a sentence, he comes to a judgment, and then we're going to see he is also the one who carries out the sentence. We'll look also at Thanksgiving because the psalm concludes with Thanksgiving. I think it's always so very interesting. One of the great things you can do as you're reading the psalms, always note how the psalms begin and how the psalms end. Um, that, just a little note you can file away. I think it's helpful as we read the psalms. And then we need to remember that all of scripture and the psalms themselves um, point to Christ. So do we see Christ in this psalm? And I think Um, As we go through, we will see that Christ, David's greater son, greatest son, is um, found here in Psalm chapter 7. So if you will, let's read the psalm. We have sung it. So now let's read it. So church, listen to the inerrant word of the living God. A Shigion of David which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemies without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust, Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift, up, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praises to the name of the Lord, the Most High. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. 
In you I take refuge, David says. We should recall that refuge is such an important theme in Scripture. That God is our refuge is uh, stated, is, is, is an illustration or a, is, is a description of God throughout the Scriptures. In 2 Samuel chapter 22-2, God is called a rock, a place of safety. When the, when the torrents of water are flooding around me, you are a solid rock. Proverbs, Solomon called, referred to God as a strong tower. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to Him and are saved. He is a place of safety, the place of salvation, and perhaps maybe the most, perhaps one of the most descriptive um, places of re- descriptions of refuge we saw when we were in the book of Numbers, which was quite some time ago. But in the book of Numbers, we, we studied about the six cities of refuge. You recall those. I, I know you remember so clearly everything we talked about in the book of Numbers because it's just, just laser etched on your brain, all that goodness. But there were six cities of refuge where a person who committed manslaughter, the unintentional killing of another person could flee to and receive uh, a fair trial. So to protect him from the um, retribution of the dead man's family, the person who killed somebody, who slayed a person accidentally, could run to a city of refuge, and there he would be protected until a fair trial could be held. And if it was determined that he was a murderer, then justice took place. But if it turns out that he was, um, that he truly... um, did this without premeditation, that it wasn't a murder, that it was just an accident, then he was protected in that city of refuge. So refuge is a major theme um, through, throughout the scripture. And we see it also in just in the few Psalms that just precede this. We're only in Psalm 7, but look at Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. We see, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his... Wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Those who take refuge in the Lord are blessed. And then in chapter 5, Psalm 5, verse 11, we also see this. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy that refuge in the Lord is a place of blessing and it is a reason for rejoicing. And so David... O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. I want you to note here that the way that David um, appeals to God, he calls him O Lord. He is calling out to my God. When he uses that term, O Lord, this is the covenant name of God. We talked a little bit about that last week, but let me uh, add to that uh, some more. In your English Bibles, you know it's the covenant name of God, which we would pronounce Yahweh. Um, But you know it's the covenant name of the Lord because Lord, all four letters are are capitalized. That's how you know it's the covenant name. So uh, an English reader, you can read that and say that this is the covenant name of Lord because it is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. If you see, see it 
where not all letters are capitalized. It's not the covenant name of God. But here, David is calling upon the covenant name of the Lord. Now, let's talk a little bit about covenants because covenants were often made between um, equal parties. For instance, I might make a covenant with one of you. We would be equal. And we might covenant together and we might say, well, this is I agree to do this and you agree to do that. And that would be the covenant that you and I would make towards one another. But oftentimes and certainly um, in regards to the covenants that God makes with his people, they are covenants between unequal parties, generally a covenant between a stronger and a weaker um, party. And these were very common in the ancient Near East, that a strong city or a strong nation would make a covenant with a weaker nation saying, listen, you do such and such for me and I will protect you. That was generally the way they worked. And that was called, well, we won't get into that. Um, But it was a covenant between unequal parties, the weaker and the stronger. And you should note that the covenant that God makes with his people is that kind of covenant. It is where God is the weaker party. And by the way, he initiates the covenant with the weaker. In fact, Charlie read it in Psalm 19. We see it. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then what was the terms? And she just said, I'm, str- I'm the strong one here. I delivered you. Here are the terms of the agreement. You'll have no other gods before me. So here is this, um, this covenant that is made between the stronger and the weaker. And the threat of attack against the weaker would trigger a response by the stronger party. So David now is calling upon the stronger covenant partner to protect him. Oh, Lord, protect me. We are in this covenant agreement. There are certain agreements that I've made towards you and that you've made towards me. And I am calling upon you now, to the stronger, to protect me from the words of Cush. Provide refuge for me against one stronger than me against weapons that David realized I have no ability to defend against. For that, Lord, you are my strength. You are my refuge. I need you to to enact that covenant agreement and protect me. David is realizing I cannot defend myself. I need God Almighty to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I have an a Cush out there is stronger and more influential and I need God Almighty to be my place of refuge. Folks, you and I know that the powers of words and accusations can influence. Well-crafted slander often draws many others into its net and pretty soon a whole community of people come against the one slandered. So it's not like just David is having to deal with one, one guy by the name of Cush. Cush, more likely, the, the nature of slander is that it draws a whole community into its net. And the whole community then ends up standing against the one slandered. And David now is in this place. I have been slandered by Cush. And I need your help. I need... You are my God as a place of refuge. I need you to defend me. In fact, he says, save me, O Lord. 
Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. Violence is threatened. He says, like a lion, lest they tear my soul apart. This is a very violent term. We see this when um, Jezebel was trampled or a person trampled by a horse. This would be this is a very violent term. And, and David is saying, Lord... You and I are in covenant together. Now protect me from those who seek my life. They want to trample me. And there is none to deliver. They, lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it into pieces with none to deliver. That phrase there, rending it into pieces with none to deliver, is often used as snatching a prey from the mouth of predators. We see it used throughout Scripture of snatching the prey from the, um, from the mouth of a predator. We see it in Deuteronomy 32:39, where it talks about um, God saying that, speaking of the evil, that no, evil people, that nobody can take them out of my hand. In other words, I, I'm going to deal with this injustice. Certainly, we see it most prominently in the New Testament in John chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus announces that he is the good shepherd. That he is the refuge for the sheep against the predatory wolves. And he says this about those who would seek to snatch those from him, the good shepherd. And he would say that no one can snatch them from my hand. Gen- I'm sorry, John chapter 10, verse 28. We read, well, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. So here we have the good shepherd who protects his sheep and keeps them in his fold, and he says that no one can snatch them out of my hand. He gathers the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep are safe for they have taken refuge in the good shepherd. He says, I give them eternal life and no one will snatch them out, out out of my hand. Jesus has offered refuge to folks like you and me. And I will say, if you hope in any other protection you will discover that they are entirely insufficient. But in Christ, he is a place of refuge, a place of safety, and he is sufficient. We should probably talk just a little bit about slander. And I would offer this. David is being slandered. If you are in Christ, well, let me back up a little bit. Christ himself was slandered without cause. In Mark chapter 3, verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And it influenced many. 
And then in Matthew chapter 26, verse, verses 65 through 68. Then the high priest tore his... I'm sorry... I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Here's the the slander. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. They have accused Jesus of being Satan himself and a blasphemer of God. Church, if you are in Christ, you and I will experience slander. The first, one of the first places slander will come will, be, will come from the devil himself. Really, you call yourself a Christian? Hath God said? Today, followers of Christ are often labeled with slanderous language. We know that Christ was slandered. We also know, according to Matthew 10.25, that we will be like our master. It is a constant theme in really just about any media that Christians, those who follow Christ, are hateful, violent, supremacists, and bigoted. In fact, they call us that. They call us violent, devilish, because we seek to protect the lives of our unborn children. We speak out against tearing them violently limb from limb in the womb. And for that, because we believe the biblical message that life belongs to God and life begins at conception. And for that we are slandered. And now we are being slandered on a regular basis because we push back against the chemical and physical mutilation of our children. It is horrific. And we are slandered because we said that they have value in the eyes of God as they are. And they do not need to be mutilated. And for that, we are slandered and defamed and been called children of the devil and all of these things. We stand for righteousness. It is a crime. It, it's now a crime to counsel, not, maybe, not, not, maybe not here, but it's a crime to counsel your child against chemical castration, but it's okay to actually physically do it. But to counsel against it is violence, but to do it is okay. 
Folks, we live in an upside-down world. We live in a world where wrong is right and right is wrong, and we stand for what God has put forth, and we will be slandered for it. There are many other reasons we'll be slandered, because we have a gospel that saves that Jesus Christ, regardless of what condition a person may be in, Christ saves. Despite what many are say, would say, we are secure in Christ. He is the good shepherd. David then goes and pleads his innocence. I'm gonna, there are three, depending on how you count, four. This is an if-then clause. So if this happened, then that's... Then if, so let me go, I'll just tell you. I'll show you. If I have... Re- Oh, Lord God, if I have done this, we don't know what this is. If I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, or if I have plundered my enemy without cause, if I have done these things, O Lord, if I have succumbed to these things, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Lord, if I have done these things, I have no problem with you judging me. I have no problem with them overtaking me. If I have done this, then let these things happen. But as we'll see, David is saying, I have not done any of that. In fact, David calls down a curse upon himself. If I have done these things, then cursed be me. Let my glory be laid in the dust. Let them trample upon me. Let violence overtake me. So here's what we have in this first kind of stanza of this poem. We have two voices, don't we? We have the voice of Cush and we have the voice of David. We have the voice of Cush charging David with wrongdoing and we have David claiming innocence. Who are we going to believe? Who's right? And this is why in the next section, David calls upon, he calls for a trial. Let there be a trial. Let my words and the words of those who who come against me put them on trial and God, you be the judge. So here we now see God as judge. The Lord, verse 8, the Lord judges. I'm sorry, verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me, for you have appointed a judgment. Let, let, Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness of the Lord. So here is this courtroom scene. David is called for a hearing, and he is called that God would be the judge of this hearing. Arise, O Lord, lift yourself up. Awake, take action. Do only what you are capable of doing. Only you can discern truth from error. Only you know the motives of of people's hearts. You, Lord, try this case. And there's a courtroom scene. The courtroom assembles in verse 7. The nations are gathered and God will sit in judgment and then God returns to the highest heavens in righteousness. And we see this. Um, Let the assembly of the people here call the nations, be gathered about you. Let them all come and hear this case. And then when it's done, return on high um, uh, to the highest heavens in righteousness. So here we see that God is revealed as the exalted judge and he is the victor. We might even say that God here takes his seat, a place of exaltation where he judges 
those who are on trial. It reminded me of Acts chapter 1, verse 9. One of my, after we studied the book of Acts, became one of my favorite verses. And I think, oh, it's up there. I do not know what's wrong with our, our video today. All the words are moved over. So Acts 1, 9, it's up there. You just can't see it. So I'll read it. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ascension signifies the heavenly reign of Christ. It signifies his coronation as King of kings and Lord of all. He is the judge of all the earth. All things are subject to him. David has called upon the Lord God. Rend your judgment and then return on high to the highest place. And this is the place where Jesus is seated as King of kings and Lord of all. And the New Testament, however, adds a startling, a startling picture, new picture of exaltation. And that is the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He is a place of refuge. The cross is also the means by which Jesus is exalted to the throne as judge. And so Jesus is the Lord and King of all. And he sits on high and he will be judge of all things. He is judge of all things. One day we will all stand before him. He's the judge of all people, David talks about in Psalm 7. That God is the judge of all people. He judges all. Everyone will stand before God and give an account. None of us get to escape that. Nobody has a side deal. People I talk to, it's like, well, I got this other deal worked out with God. You don't. He tests both the minds and the heart, David tells us. God's judgment goes beyond action but intent. God, you may do a good thing for a selfish motive. You may end up doing something wrong, but you didn't mean to. But God judges both the action and the intent. Slander is often camouflaged in righteousness. Slander often has the outward appearance of helpfulness or concern. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I just want to, let, I want to help you out by letting you know about so-and-so. My name is Cush, and I just want to help you. That day, here's how I'm going to help you. I'm going to warn you about David. David is a man of violence. David is a man that you cannot trust. David is a man who is corrupt. And I'm just doing this because, man, I just care so much for you. Slander. You can decorate it how you want to decorate it. And usually, rarely is slander um, obvious. But God is a righteous judge. Like we see that in verse 11. God is a righteous judge. He is a God who feels indignation every day. Wow. God feels indignation. Indignation would be anger that is aroused at something unjust. Folks, God is not lukewarm. God does not take injustice lightly. In fact, one of the things I found interesting is that he is called here. We sometimes we, we, we talk about the names of God, and here's one that this was new to me, El Zaham. 
who is the God of indignation, the God of righteous justice. He is the God who is angry at all times against injustice. And folks, we are a culture that screams for justice, whether it's environmental, social, economic, or some other. We are a a nation that cries for justice. I want you to know God is a God of justice, and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. But before we cry out for justice, we should make sure that we are right with God. We should find shelter from his wrath and the work of Christ. So, quick summary of this second section. Christ will judge the living and the dead. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For those who have run to him for refuge, he is the judge and he will vindicate. Those who rely on anything else have spurned his name and will face the righteous judge. David is called for a courtroom. And he said, I want you, O Lord, to be the judge. You determine who's, who's telling the truth and who's not, doing the, who's not telling the truth. And you be the judge of these two testimonies. God is a righteous judge. And then we begin to see righteous, God carrying out righteous judgment. In other words, he is the executor of the sentence. He passes sentence and then he executes that sentence. God carries out the sentence that he has declared and we see that God is an opponent to the unrepentant. Verse 12, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Now, we see God as an opponent to the unrepentant. And I want, you to, I want you to take note of this conditional clause. If a man does not repent, oh, folks, let's take some solace in those, that con, that, those conditions. If a man does not repent, now we see what God was waiting for when he seemed slow to act. His mercy is being displayed in his delay. Oh, oftentimes you and I demand and we require and we insist upon God having swift justice. But God in his mercy delays. And I would ask you, my friends, in your life, what if God was swift in his justice? Where would you be if he did not delay his justice? You and I, would be eternally separated from God Almighty. But he, in his mercy, delayed. And so here is God as the judge. And if a man does not repent, then God will sharpen his sword. And I like this. He is bent and readied his bow. This is, I'm not a bow hunter. I don't even shoot bows and arrows. But this is the bow pulled back. And at the next slightest moment, that bow, that arrow is going to be released. It is at the very threshold of being released. This is God. He has sharp, if you do not repent, he has sharpened his sword and the bow, that arrow is set to fly. 
And this would be against the unrepentant. Folks, in Luke chapter 13, verses 3 through 5, we hear the words of Christ. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God is calling us to repent of our slander, of our sin. And if you have, if you have found refuge in Christ, be assured no one will snatch you out of his hands. Here's we see, I think, an interesting flip. Here, for the unrepentant, God is not the, a refuge, but he is the executioner. God is not the refuge as to the unrepentant, but he is their executioner. What a contrast. God is refuge or God is executioner. How does a person escape those fiery shafts? By power? By being stronger? You are not stronger than God. By might? Good luck. A convincing argument? You have none. Highlighting the guilt of others? Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. To escape the fiery shaft, there is a requirement. And it is not power. It is not highlighting the guilt of others. It is not convincing God otherwise, but it is through repentance. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. If a man does repent, God lays down his bow. We reap what we sow. God has prepared his deadly weapons. The evil person seems to be oblivious to the actions that God is preparing. He thinks his schemes are unknown even to God. The sinner is facing the living God himself. In fact, Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you have not called upon the name of the Lord and found salvation in Christ alone, it will be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In fact, one of the great pictures in Revelation chapter 6.16, the return of the Lord, people cry out and they say, let the rocks and the mountains fall on us. We would rather be crushed under the earth than to have to gaze into the face of the living Christ who judges the living and the dead. I love the next metaphor, if you will, or poetic framing of the statement. He says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. There's conception, pregnancy, and he gives birth to lies. We see this in James chapter 1, verse 15. I'll bet you James got the, this very famous passage from Psalm chapter 7. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God, in Psalm chapter 7, God causes the plans of the enemy to defeat the enemy. 
I would remind you of Haman in the book of Esther who had built the gallows on which he was going to hang Mordecai for his disrespect. But in the end, it was Haman who was hanged on the gallows and Mordecai was exalted above all but the king. I would remind you also where one's own schemes are brought to nothing and the most obvious place is Calvary where men and devils sought to nullify the work of God Almighty by hanging him on a tree. Little did they know that that was the means by which the plan of God set forth in eternity past would be brought to fulfillment. It is through that that men and women would be saved from the wrath of God. Our psalm ends with thanksgiving. I will give to the Lord the thanks that is due to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Most High God. What an appropriate response. I I will give thanks to God due to his righteousness. God judges and executes his justice in, in righteousness and because of his righteousness, he is a place of refuge. He is, and I will sing to the Lord Most High. This is another name of God, El Elyon, the exaltation portrayed in verse chapter uh, 6 and following concludes the psalm. God is exalted and God is the Most High. I want to draw just a few gospel connections and then I'll be done. I pray that none of you are enduring slander or lies, though probably many are. And it's tempting very tempting to exhort you to be like David to overcome these things. And there's a lot to learn from David from this psalm. Not much to learn about God, but here would probably be my exhortation. Let's not be Cush, the slanderer. Let's consider our speech. Have we slandered others? Have we slandered God Almighty? We slander God by by spurning his remedy for our sinful condition. If we say, I've got a different way, that God, I know that maybe Jesus died on the cross, but that doesn't quite do it for me. That's not quite sufficient. I still need to put forth some effort. Let me contribute something. We have slandered God Almighty. We have said, you have said that this is sufficient, but I doubt you. You must be lying to me. Let me participate and help you fix the problem. God says, I don't need your help. I am God Almighty. I know how to do this. I know what the problem is and I know the remedy. And the the problem is sin and the remedy is Christ and it is sufficient. Let us not be men and women who slander God. If you are not a believer today and you think that somehow you're going to find some other means of salvation, we will slander the words of God, the character of God Almighty. We, if we spurn His remedy for our sinful condition, if we call evil good and good evil, we are spurning the living God. 
when we align ourselves with contemporary idols, we spurn the living God. Let us not be cush. Let us watch our tongues with one another. Let's watch how we speak about God Almighty. Let us, as brothers and sisters, let's defer to that which is noble and good towards one another. When we have something against another, we can go to them. We don't need to go to our friends. We can go to them and say, listen, I got something against you. This is a problem between you and me. We don't get on Twitter and say, you know, so-and-so. Too often times we are not David, but we are Cush. I want to encourage you that Jesus is the good shepherd and he is a refuge for all who take shelter in him. He protects his own. He slays the wolves who seek to destroy us. And he is a sufficient refuge. You might think that a sheepfold is not a safe place against a mighty pack of wolves, what you don't, what you need to understand is that the good shepherd is more than capable of defending you. In fact, he says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is also judge. He has been exalted to the place of judgment. We see that in Matthew 25. We see it in Acts chapter 1-9. He has been exalted to the place of judgment and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. He will vindicate the righteous. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And I love the the answer to that rhetorical question. It is God who justifies. God is the one who has declared you not guilty. Who can bring a charge into his courtroom against God's own people? He's the one who slammed the gavel down and said, you're not guilty. He is the righteous judge. He will vindicate the righteous. But he is also our executioner, or the executioner. This would be for the unrepentant. And he will carry out a just sentence. Nobody, nobody will say, wait a second, that's an unfair verdict. For the unrepentant, he will be just. Church, given what we know about the gracious workings of God, the mighty workings of God, we, like David, can be men and women of thankfulness. I will give thanks to the Lord, the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Father God, we...